there, and welcome to the Nightmare Collective, a podcast that combines true crime and horror. We're your hosts, Melissa, Cody, and Allie. And welcome to our second true crime episode. Welcome back to all of you who have followed us this far, and a special hello to those who um, are just now joining us for the first time. If you have not had a chance to listen to the first few episodes, uh, we want to invite you to go back and give them a listen. Last episode, we spoke about two people who did some pretty unspeakable things in the Pacific Northwest. And like last episode, we will be doing the same thing with two new people today. But before we even get into that, I want to ask you guys this. You know, with Halloween being later in the month, um, mm-hmm. what is, what, what's your go-to thing for Halloween? Like what, mm. what is your like... What do you get excited about for Halloween? Uh, well, my favorite thing is absolutely pumpkin spice because uh, I'm basic, apparently. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I just love, I don't know, the cozy feeling of fall. Um, I love going to like haunted houses and um, even though you're terrified the even entire though time? i'm terrified um i'll go hang out in a graveyard i'm not even kidding um anyway but yeah i just love all those things that make it cozy and everything and i always watch hocus pocus Ooh, hocus pocus melissa what about you i um, mean you aren't like super into creepy stuff no um okay so i love the change in the seasons first oh yeah and for yes. oh yeah um i i like the fact that it's not gray all the time yet but we have rain mm-hmm. and being able to read a book and listen to the rain i'm one of those people um as far as like the halloween stuff goes i really think that my favorite part is just like seeing kids dressed up i yeah. love that they're yeah. so cute yeah and i yeah it's so heartwarming mm-hmm. it, it totally is and it makes me want to dress up yeah <laughs> and like have that i can be somebody else for a day or a couple hours but yeah mm-hmm. yeah for yeah. us you know last year we we got the opportunity to go trick-or-treating with our niece and nephews yeah. and you know that um that was a lot of fun you know our uh, niece was just really excited to go get candy and our mm-hmm. our uh, nephew who's the middle child he was I mean, ecstatic to just go up to the door and knock and, yeah. and get candy. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the youngest one was sitting in a wagon half the time, kind of just mm-hmm. hanging out. The best. Yeah. Knowing he's going to get candy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was, it really was a lot of fun. Um, for me though, like for Halloween and the fall, just in general. So the fall and winter are my two favorite seasons. Um, but for me, it's the days where, we are like just laying in bed and the windows open and mm. you can hear the rain oh, and yeah. watching horror movies but but watching horror movies while drinking coffee and mm. just like being lazy on a fall day mm. is literally the best and yeah. and or hot chocolate i i also have the opportunity where i spend a lot of my work day inside of a coffee shop and so sitting in a coffee shop while it's just a torrential downpour oh, and being yeah. cozy and mm-hmm. sipping on, you know, a nice cup of coffee um, is probably one of my favorite things. And just having coffee with people, um, 
you know, like, yeah. like last year I had coffee with your husband probably mm-hmm. almost on a daily basis. Um, except he doesn't drink coffee because he's <laughs> lame. Um, Sad. so, uh, but yeah, I, what? Oh, uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Her husband is sitting in the same room with us and doesn't have a microphone, but he's giving me dirty looks. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, the fall is just kind of a wonderful season. Um, yeah. That being said, what is something you're going to miss doing this fall? Because unfortunately, <sighs> COVID is going to impact um, probably the rest of our year. And, um, you know, I would even argue probably a majority of next year. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Give me a little shred of hope. <laughs> the rest of this year. Okay. The rest of this year. Yeah. I will. I can. <laughs> I feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel that keeps moving further and further and further away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I know that it sucks. Yeah. Especially for someone who is obsessed with Disney and wants to go. Yeah. And it's been closed <laughs> for so long. And I wouldn't go even if it was open right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, What will I miss? Well, aside from going to Disneyland. No. Uh, Actually, that's true. But. I think um, for me, a big thing is just the fall is such an exciting time usually because I work in education. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. so the ki- you know, kids are coming back and you're meeting new kids and you're excited yeah. and you're like re-energized for a new year and you don't really get, we don't get yeah. any of that exciting part (laughs) right now so for sure yeah that's it's like there's like a big hole Mm -hmm. and even though i work it's like being unemployed in a way so yeah but and Mm -hmm. i will miss not or being more secure in the fact that i won't get sick (laughs) yeah Yeah. oh yeah Mm -hmm. flu season is always as a person with anxiety that tends to focus on my health Mm -hmm. um Flu season is always scary. Yeah. And so now it's the stakes have been raised. Right. Yeah. <laughs> dun, dun, Next dun. level of Jumanji. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. Could you imagine Jumanji? Mm. No. Where you are like, you are like an antibody having to fight germs. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, it's no. like Osmosis Jones. <gasps> oh, oh Osmosis childhood Jones. memory unlocked. Oh, so good. No. Um, uh, Allie, what about, what about you? What, what's something you're going to miss? Um, well, probably like I really wanted to do a couple things this fall and including like going to pumpkin patch and and that kind of thing. So while that's not out of the reach mm-hmm. um, with agro tourism, um, it's definitely not something that probably will end up happening. Yeah. I'm more sad about the fact that in like December there will be no Nutcracker Ballet. Um <laughs> Ignore him. Yeah. <laughs> um, marriage. Yeah. Marriage. Don't get married. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> also, if you don't know, that's something that we say. We obviously don't mean it because we've been <laughs> married six years. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah. yeah, it's just kind of that kind of thing where, you know, not so much community stuff. Yeah. The yeah. traditions have to go out the window. Yeah. Like yeah. The things that you look forward to. Like you can't connect with people the same. And yeah. That's pretty sad to me. And and I think for me, and this, this is going to be the hard part, is we often have movie nights with friends mm-hmm. and like... You know, even if it's Friendsgiving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We we've done that a couple of times, even if it's not like on Thanksgiving yeah. or even the week of Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's only a few people that we actively are seeing right now because 
I mean, so many people on my side of the family are um, high risk. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then on top of that, Allie's high risk. Yeah. She's got lots of medical stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we don't we don't see a ton of people. I yeah. mean, I mean, you guys know you two, Melissa, yeah. you and your husband are two of the few people that we see. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, being able to to invite like 10 people over to watch movies and eat food and have drinks. Yeah. Like it's not going to be the same, yeah. Yeah. but I think that we have the opportunity to build new traditions. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And so I think that's the exciting part too. Yeah. Um, I know one thing that I want to do, which I know Ali probably won't want to, um, the weekend before Halloween, or even on Halloween, because this year Halloween's on a Friday? I think it's a Saturday. I think it's, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I mean, so then it even could be Halloween. Um, I want to watch all four of the Exorcist movies. So there's mm-hmm. the first one, the second one, and the third one, and then the prequel. Um, I want to watch all four of them on, like, in a single day, because that was something that Boo. my... <laughs> that was something my dad and I were going to do... Uh, one of the first Halloweens I watched horror movies and I chickened out Um, and my dad probably wouldn't watch any any of them except for the first one because dad I love you you change your opinion on movies all the time (laughs) and I know you're gonna listen to this so I'm calling you out Um, very grumpy but I love you thank you for working on the van and being a wonderful father. Um, and if it wasn't for you, Cody maybe wouldn't be obsessed with horror. And then this podcast would never have come that's to true. be. So between, really, you're the real MVP. But mm-hmm. Between dad and brother. Yes, mm-hmm. that is true. Um, well, that being said, guys, um, you know, <laughs> some some pretty crazy and, and morbid things were discussed last week. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and, and we're starting in the state of Washington. Um, and the great thing is, you know, Allie and Melissa uh, each do their own research on uh, two different people. Um, I get to sit here and say witty and fun things. I, I mean, they may, may not be witty or anything, but. Nope. Um, <laughs> wow. Thanks. <laughs> um, but Allie and Melissa are the, uh, the podcast true crime experts. Um, and so mm-hmm. we uh, are spending some time in Washington before we start heading out to different states. Um, mm-hmm. As we start our road trip of terror, if you would. Mm-hmm. Um, and so before we get started, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked yeah. last time. Um, who thinks their case is creepier or more morbid? Who thinks it? Um, I don't know. I I think mine is creepier. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I'll oh. go there. I think okay. mine is creepier. Okay. Allie, what about you? Um, I don't think... Mm. I mean, it's creepy and it's disturbing, mm-hmm. but okay. I don't know if it's more so than Melissa's. Okay. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, and here's the funny part. judge at the end. Yeah. I was, was going to say, here's the funny part. I... Don't know anything about these two. Uh-huh. I don't know what Melissa did, and I don't know what my own wife researched because she did Ooh. all of it while I was not around. Covert. Yes. So that Very being sneaky. said, <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to be the judge, which I'm okay with. Yeah, that's um, yeah, yeah. There you go. So before we get started, mm-hmm. we have to do the same thing that we did last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we 
or we, you are going to play yes. rock, paper, scissors yes. to see who goes first. Now, I'm going to repeat the rules. Yes. It is rock, paper, scissors, shoot. It's the only real way to play rock, paper, scissors. It's the only way to be, it's the only civilized way to play rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> unless it's rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock. But we're not. We're, we're not doing that. In the Big Bang Theory. No. So, And I, I'm not like Sheldon. I couldn't tell you who beats what. Um, that being said, uh, hands up. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh. No. Allie, you are Allie, going twice in a row. First. I did not. Can we have two out of nope. three? That's not how we play. I don't want to go first. Oh, well. You did awesome. You will do awesome again. Yes. I have faith in you. Okay, thanks. Okay. Gotta have faith. So, Allie, you won. Yeah. Which means you get to go first. Okay. Um. So... My murder happens in um, Vancouver, Washington. Mm. So it's a little bit further away. So Vancouver. Yeah, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it's still our state. Yeah, still Washington. But yeah. but pretty far. So that's, that's good. So, um, and this happened quite a long time ago. But <clears throat> on the night of March 19th, 1950, uh, Joanne Dewey was attempting to return from a day in Portland. I read conflicting reports that she was coming from work, but then that she also had spent the day with a friend. Um, what is certain is that she worked in the kitchen at Portland Adventist Sanitarium. It was at mm. 60th Avenue and Southeast Belmont Street in Mount Tabor, in the Mount Tabor neighborhood. It was 10.25 p.m. and she had purchased a bus ticket in Portland, Oregon to be in her trek back home to Vancouver, Washington. So, I mean, that's not terribly far, but uh-huh. that is a, that is a trek, though. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're not driving. Mm-hmm. And having to take the bus. Well, and who knows how long the bus route was at I'm, that time. I'm, I'm assuming this trek back home is going to be her demise. Oh, yeah. Um. <laughs> So at about 11.15 p.m., she called her mother and Elizabeth Dewey from the Central Bus Depot in Vancouver about getting a ride home to Battleground, Washington. This is about 17.7-mile trip, um, 20 mi- t- 21 minutes by car, an yeah. hour and 21 by bus, and four hours and 47 minutes if you have to walk, according to Google Maps today. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that bus ride would suck, especially if she was getting off late. Yes. Mm. Um, so her mother told her to get a ride back from a friend that worked at the nearby St. Joseph Hospital and Nursing School, which was only about a 10 minute walk away. Um, at about 1130 p.m., people heard a woman's terrified screams for help near the Central Court Apartments and the students at St. Jo- Joseph's Nursing School, which was only two blocks away from the site of the attack. Dun, dun, dun. Um, witnesses said that they saw a young woman struggling with two men, but no one interfered. One oh. of the witnesses. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Like let's, let's time out there for a second. So people saw what was going on and actively chose to do nothing. Yeah. Remember the last episode, how we were like, cool. This guy did the right thing. He stopped. Yeah. He made sure the kids were like alive yeah. and then went and made a phone call. Yeah. That dude, hero. Yeah. These people, scum. Well, well it's like that, what would you do? Like, yeah. have you ever watched that show? And mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I would. Yeah. Right. I like, and then people don't actually, yeah, actually for do sure. that. Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of shocking. It's that, you know, they're like, oh, I don't want to get involved mm-hmm. and make it weird. Um, one of the witnesses, a doctor, Chester N. Thackeray, um, who was a veterinary in the area, 
came outside to complain about the racket and he was told by one of the men, shut up, this is my wife. And Aww. the woman was heard screaming and replying, no, I'm not, I'm not, per the Walla Walla Union Bulletin. Oh, jeez. Um, the men then punched her in the head and face and shoved her into the back of an older model black Buick. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, so totally acceptable behavior, you know. Um, the incident was reported, but one thing that would end up being the beginning of an awful case was that it was initially treated as a domestic violence incident <sighs> instead of what it was, an abduction. That's also upsetting, though, that like all he had to say was, this is my wife. Yeah, and then, they, they mm, took his word. Well, also, no, but, but not only that they it wasn't a problem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like his wife. Well, yeah. yeah. If somebody, if somebody was like, "This is my wife," I'd be like, "Oh, well, then you clearly don't deserve her." If that's what you're <laughs> treating, yeah, right. True. Like, why are you manhandling? True. Her yeah. and stuff, Again, you know? though, 1950. Yeah, very true. So, women property. Yeah, exactly. Women were not valued very. I mean, much. we couldn't even have a credit card until like the 1970s on our own. So, I is that true? Yeah. Wanted to make a joke, but I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm not. You're sitting you here with not. two women. Yeah, you yeah. will get kicked out. So yeah, um, mm-hmm. I'm I, I actively chose to not make a comment. So yeah. let's move on. Anyway, so fortunately, Sergeant Carl Forsbeck and Officer Frank Irwin, who were initially on the scene due to uh, did their due diligence and collected all the evidence that they could, which included a torn purse strap, a silver barrette, and an empty bottle of Olympia brand beer, which had been left behind. For the record, as far as cheap beer is concerned, Olympia is pretty good. Uh, so Sergeant Forsbeck keenly observed, sorry, I can't talk apparently, um, something interesting when he collected the bottle that the liquid liquid was still cold and the bubbles were still large. So it was still, it was fresh. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause anyone that knows anything about beer, cheap beer goes flat fast. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. I guess I've never thought about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, whenever I drink, like, a Rainier or yeah. a PBR or even, you know, uh, uh, an Olympia brand beer, like, for me, it's it's got to be one of those things that's gone within 15, yeah. 20 minutes mm-hmm. because it gets flat. Once it gets flat, it loses flavor, and it has to be, like, ice cold. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I like beer. Um, so the police wouldn't realize that this was an abduction until the following morning when Joanne's mother, Anna, would call the police reporting her daughter as missing. <sighs> They launched a search for Joanne. The unfortunate truth of the fact was that the majority of the law officers assigned to the case, many sheriffs and deputies involved, um, most of them had just come to power in a recent election, which by virtue of law was an elected position. Um, But because of this, they had little to no experience, and many of the county officials were completely lacking in any training for their positions as well. Hmm. that's great. All were very sincere by all accounts in wanting to bring Joanne home. They just weren't prepared. Yeah. I mean, okay. It's just sad. Yeah. yeah. It sucks and it's sad. Terrible timing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, mm-hmm. I, I also, like, it's also, it kind of feels like it's not their fault. They're, I'm sure that there's more they could have done, but mm-hmm. but not being prepared for your position or trained for your position I can somewhat understand also not really an excuse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so they searched parks, rivers, back roads, and sent search parties deep into remote areas, but they found no trace of young Miss Dewey. Um, and then on March 26th, a Sunday and seven days post Joanne's disappearance, her body was found by three fishermen amongst the boulders and stones of the Wind River in Skamania County. 
um, Wind River being 44 miles east of Vancouver where Joanne Dewey had gone missing. Um, the body was later confirmed to be that of Miss Joanne Dewey. Preliminary coroner's report, one of those county elected officials, stated that they believe she had died from a severe cerebral cerebral hemorrhage but with further investigation and a coroner's inquest found out more um cause of death being carbon monoxide poisoning she had been found naked severely beaten and sexually assaulted and then she had been stuffed while still alive into the trunk of a car with a defective exhaust system oh my gosh yeah so so literally like Mm -hmm. the worst you can imagine yeah just suffocated in the trunk of a car which yeah i mean it, it's mm-hmm. messed up enough when people do it to like baby animals that yeah. they don't want, but doing it to mm-hmm. a person yeah. is. Um, Joanne was described as a girl who loved life and was seldom seen without a smile on her face in her obituary, which can be found on findagrave.org or .com. Um, and I do believe she still has family that are alive today. Um, and they wrote some messages on her wall oh, wow. there um, that I was able to read. Let's see. Um, more than 800 people would attend her funeral, which was wow. held at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Meadow Glade. Um, she was then laid to rest in Brush Prairie Cemetery. Meanwhile, the case had gone national. The FBI became involved and were able to match the fingerprints that were found on that bottle of Olympia brand beer to Utah Wilson. That, okay, that feels like... <laughs> Considering the time frame, Mm -hmm. that feels like a really big deal for criminal investigation Mm -hmm. for them to be able to do that. Because now, like when we think of running fingerprints, it's like, oh, yeah, easy. Like there's a database. Yeah. Just mm -hmm. throw them in, you know, it's a computer that does it. But back then it would have been people. Yeah. Literally comparing fingerprints. (laughs) Yeah. So like I, I don't know. That just kind of amazes me like that. That Mm -hmm. I mean, actually work something. Yeah. I mean, cool that it did. Yeah. Well, and um, so Utah Wilson um, was very well known. um, And so was his family. He came from a large family from Camas, a few miles away from Vancouver. The family was pretty notorious with the patriarch Moses R. Wilson having served seven years in Washington State Penitentiary for the molestation of a 13-year-old girl in 1933. Ew. The boys would, for the most part, follow in their father's footsteps. Oh, yeah. So, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and it makes you question like how much your environment really yeah. does kind of impact how you grow mm-hmm. up and what you learn and yeah. all of that. I mean, that yeah. nature versus yeah, nurture exactly. debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you born evil or do become you become evil? evil? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let the record show that the person who is you know, is going to be a therapist slash is doing therapy. Just looked at us with a, with a like mischievous grin. Um, <laughs> so that's, I that's think funny. Part of it is because he knows I, mm-hmm. I'm going to find a way to reference it and everything. Yeah. That's what I love about Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. that question. For sure. Are you, how do you become who you are? Yeah. And anyway, it's funny. So, um, Not that question, but my obsession. Right. Uh, Utah himself would spend several years of his life in a boy's prison in Chehalis, Washington, which is, by the way, still there and has been under numerous investigations for um, really awful things. <laughs> a 
Is it still a boys' prison? Um, yeah, it's still a young men's prison. So, so ask Allie why she knows that. Allie, why do you know that? Um, well, there's two actually in the area that I grew up in. I grew up in in around Rochester, Washington, and there's one in Rochester, Washington, and then there's one in Chehalis, Washington. Yeah, yeah. she spent some time in that area. That's that's we why we would she drive knows. past the boys' prison in Rochester all the time. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I I was expecting that sentence, and she spent some time in the boys' prison, and I was like, You're like why? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> How yeah. did she get in there? Yeah, no, that wasn't wasn't yeah. going creepy with yeah. that. No, was like, oh my god, she, she grew up there. Yeah, so. right, that makes that mm-hmm. slash. I didn't even know that such a thing. There, yeah would still i mm-hmm. i don't know i think of that as being like an old like now it's like juvenile detention for sure it's yeah. Not like boys prison for sure mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah no and they have mm, they do not have the greatest conditions which uh-huh. is why they've been under audit and investigation by the That's state of washington yeah. yeah not sure if they still are to be fair so yeah don't yeah sue me but yeah. um but please don't sue us yeah we don't have the money for that We're right we're broke. One um, of us works in education. The other two work for a nonprofit. We have no money. Please don't sue us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, his rap sheet that the FBI had compiled for him included burglary and assault, plus other extensive violent crimes. His brother, Terman G. Wilson, was not any better. He had also spent time in and out of prison, most notably for being part of a rape on a 17-year-old girl in Portland in 1942 that ended up not only sending himself to prison, but also two other of his brothers, Rassie and Glenn, who also participated in the act. Um, this sent them to the Oregon State Penitentiary. Rassy and Glenn received 20 years for this crime, but Terman was able to get out in 1948, though in that same year he would then be arrested again for a robbery in Portland. This sounds like a pretty sketchy family. Just a little bit. Um, the Reader's Digest of all of this is pretty much this whole family was excellent at being horrible people. Yeah. Um, That's what it sounds like. Even their mother, Eunice, received a 10-year suspended sentence for harboring her son, Glenn, when he was a fugitive after escaping prison in 1946. Okay. Um, okay. When <laughs> the two men heard that the police were looking for them for questioning because of all of this, um, they went on the lam. This this totally reminds me, and I I'm sorry. Reminds me of the Goonies, <laughs> and and the the mom and the 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 two uh, the Fertelli brothers, like they are all part of this crime ring, and that she keeps an eye on them. Uh, I I will say that this family in real life is far more screwed up and gross you and think? awful. <laughs> um. So, yeah. Um. So on Thursday, March 30th, uh, the Clark County prosecutor filed an information um, in Superior Court charging the Wilsons with kidnapping and first degree murder. And based on this filing, um, the U.S. attorney um, filed a complaint with the U.S. commissioner in Tacoma charging the Wilsons with an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. A violation of the Fugitive Felon Act and federal warrants were then issued for their arrest. Oh, oh, I, oh, okay. Yeah, it's a lot of information. Um, and a lot of this information mostly came from um, historialylink.org. So just putting that out there, citing mm-hmm. my sources. Um, let's see. During the investigation, police recovered two automobiles connected with the Wilson brothers. 
and both were registered to Grant I. Wilson, the youngest brother who lived in Camas with his wife, Hazel. Uh, Grant had left his wretched home life at age 16 and only one of the five Wilson brothers still living who had never been connected with any crime. A pure soul. I, well, yeah. Maybe. I was going to say that like comes back to that nature versus yeah. nurture because mm-hmm. then you're like, well, if it's the nurture part, like For what sure. made him d- different? I mean, he did get out s- yeah. sooner. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, I'm assuming. Well, I mean, but, or right. even just getting out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But like, was that the game changer? Well, and even more so, it could be his spouse too. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I, mean, I didn't the, even think of that. The influence of his spouse and, and mm-hmm. the life that she a wants or B was already living. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, or it could be both. Right. It yeah. also could be that that was just what was going to happen and he was going to be the one to get out no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So when questioned, Grant, upon the advice of his pastor at the Assembly of God Church, told the police detectives um, that Terman in Utah left his house on Monday, March 27th, saying they were going to Silverton, Oregon to visit their father. Uh, they were driving a used Oldsmobile that Terman, using an alias, had purchased in Portland on March 22nd. On Wednesday, March 29th, however, Terman called from a motel in Sacramento, California, asking if Grant had inquiries from the police about them. <laughs> yeah. Um... So the FBI immediately notified their Sacramento field office, which requested the Sacramento police to be on the lookout for the Oldsmobile. Eventually they would find them at um, kind of crappy hotel. And um, he had, well, Utah was carrying a llama. That's what it says. A 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol and a 38 caliber six shot revolver um, was found under the front seat of the automobile. The brothers had also registered under a fictitious name and only revealed their true identity after being arrested. And Utah was in possession of 550 in $10 bills, which he claimed he had stolen in a series of burglaries for which he had spent one year in Clark County Jail. And the money was his because he earned it doing time. (laughs) He earned it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I earned it doing time. For sure. Yes. Well, that being said too, $550 in 1950. Mm-hmm. yeah that's like, a lot of money that's yeah. that's a lot of money in yeah. fact mm-hmm. i know at first i was like 550 dollars but, but then it's like oh but i wonder what the what the conversion would be yeah. oh i'm, I'm looking <laughs> um, cody won't let it rest right what is it um so on friday april 1st the wilson brothers appeared before the u.s commissioner in sacramento and charged with and they were charged with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Bail was set at twenty five thousand each, which they could not post. Yeah. Um, Vancouver detectives um, flew to Sacramento with copies of the arrest warrants issued by Clark County to begin removal proceedings, but the defendants waived extradition. So early Sunday morning, um, a few deputies and um, the sheriff um, would drive down to in two automobiles to bring the fugitives back to Washington State for trial. Mm. Okay, so time out. This is insane. How much do you think five hundred and fifty dollars in nineteen fifty is worth now? I mean, maybe double. Okay, so I would say like triple. Okay, so I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. I would say you, like eleven hundred dollars. Ali is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Melissa, I mean, give me a number because I'm not doing the math. Like twenty five. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure, in we'll stay there. <laughs> $550 in 1950 is the equivalent to 
uh, $5,913.09 today. That's way more than... than so, wow. the okay. $550 that he had is... I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, oh, that he earned. Than, yeah. well, and then that makes their bail. How mm-hmm. much was their bail? Did you say 25? Their bail was 25000 each. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. You ready for this? You ready for this? <laughs> no. <laughs> Wait. I hit, I hit calculate. Oh, no. Okay. $268,776.97 today. Oh, that is. So a quarter, I mean, a, over a quarter of a million dollars. That's insane. Yeah. Okay. Jeez. Now, and and this might be really mean to me. I create mental pictures in my mind when I like read or For when sure. I listen to yeah. stuff like this. If I, if I haven't seen the pictures. So I am picturing these people being like backwoods, all men, constantly chewing, like wearing overalls with no shirts underneath, like those kind of people mm-hmm. if you've seen the movie deliverance <laughs> that's what she's talking about and like you know like living in a shack yeah. like that i guess yeah. that's kind of like for sure. my so Your even for them especially i would think mm-hmm. th- their fam i mean with all the other crime going on their family surely probably can't afford it yeah i mean in reality they probably couldn't afford a lot of things mm-hmm. bail a decent quality of life. Um, I mean, again, their their bail was ended up being like two hundred and sixty thousand dollars a person. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, nowadays it was yeah. twenty five. Then, mm. I mean, that's that's a house. Maybe that mom wasn't like. <laughs> maybe she wasn't like actually like harboring them. She was just like, as long as I don't have to pay a few bucks for a while for yeah. your lawyers or oh your yeah whatever right. you can stay here. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe she was just the kind of mom that was like, oh, my baby's home. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, not going to question anything. Well, yeah. you know, the one that she did harbor, um, he dressed up as a woman oh. to oh. be in incognito. Well, then okay. my guess is that she knew. Yeah. yeah. She knew. She knew more than we would like to believe. Yeah. Unless that was just his thing. And he liked dressing that way. Um, so on Thursday, April 20th, 1950, Terman and Utah appeared before Clark County Superior Court Judge uh, Charles W. Hall for arraignment. The defendants pleaded not guilty to the charges of kidnapping and first degree murder of and were ordered. They did. Yeah, right. Held without bail. Um, attorneys I, Irvin Goodwin of Portland and Sanford Clement of Vancouver, these people all have names that are like tongue twisters right now, um, were appointed defense counsel and trial was scheduled to commence on June 12th, 1950 before Judge Eugene C. Cushing Jr. So can I guess that they were deemed guilty and went to jail forever? Well, the trial began on Monday morning, June 12th, 1950 with jury selection and they ended up picking... um, Four women and eight men plus two alternates. Um, so they were impaneled and sworn in. Okay. After the noon recess, the jury was taken to the street where Joanne Dewey was abducted. Oh. Yes. Um, at 3 p.m., the prosecuting attorney Jones presented his opening statement in which he outlined the state's case against the defendants. 
um, that both Wilson brothers were both convicted felons, kidnapped Joanne Dewey, intending to rape her. She was severely beaten and sexually assaulted, then stepped into the automobile trunk. And because of the defective exhaust system, she ended up dying. Yeah, she died. Um, she died within an hour of abduction from carbon monoxide poisoning after disposing of the body in the remote Wind River Canyon. Uh, the defendants went into hiding to avoid police questioning and then fled to California after Dewey's body was found. Okay. So that was the opening statement. Um, in the defense attorney's opening statement, he called the Wilson brothers as cowl, cowl youths who went astray, but were trying to go straight only to find they were being hounded by the police at every turn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like <laughs> we're talking about people who've done awful, 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 awful things mm-hmm. whose family has done awful, 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 awful things. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I think we talked about this the last episode. I believe people can change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe that people can have a change of heart and change their ways. Mm-hmm. But let's be real. Like, but, these people didn't. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so the, he went on to say, you know, oh, they were just, he tried to, you know, give them an alibi and all of that and just being like, oh, no, they're just misunderstood. And, um, you know, the person, Utah was out on bail for, um, you know, for a burglary and the police suspected him of stealing a power saw and his brother who like had just gotten out of, prison or whatever you know decided to quit his job at the pendleton woolen mills in washougal and accompany his brother so he wouldn't be alone and it just keeps going and it sounds like a bunch of um, it, bullshit it sounds like a stretch i was gonna say yeah i mean it they could they could have changed maybe some of that stuff is true but right that it sounds like a stretch that mm-hmm. oh it just all coincidentally lined up with yeah. this thing and that thing and mm-hmm. yeah. i would like to believe I would like to believe that people aren't being framed, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah. for some of that stuff. I, I think it happens. I do, yeah. th- I do think it happens, but... Mm-hmm. And I was able to find... Oh, sorry. I didn't oh, no. Cut you off. No. I was just going to say, it, it seems like too much yeah. to be that. Well, and I found um, another article, which it kind of talked about... Um, uh, it was in conjunction with a book that was coming out that was written by this guy, and he like talked about some other people that might have been... Um, guilty of this murder um, and that the Wilson brothers could have been framed um, but none of it was like solid evidence so Mm -hmm. I did not really include it in here yeah well Um, I mean oh sorry Um, I mean the other thing we have to look at too is often when things are too good to be true they often are they often are right like and and it sounds like it would have to have been a perfect storm in order for them to have been innocent Mm -hmm. and Whereas I would say there's a possibility of that. I also think that it's not realistic. Yeah. It's not likely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So bring her home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The state rested its case late Tuesday afternoon on June 20th, 1950. After five days of direct testimony from 34 witnesses, um, the defense attorney then moved for dismissal of the case against the Wilson brothers, which was denied by judge Cushing. Um, the Wilson's main defense was to show a convincing alibi. Um, attorney Goodman attempted to present testimony from four usherettes at the Playhouse Theater that the defendants were there watching a movie. Um, unfortunately, the witnesses were not able to remember times and dates clearly enough to substantiate the alibi. Of um, course. One witness testified she positively remembered seeing the brothers enter the theater at approximately 8.30 p.m. However, 
The manager's work records revealed she had not worked that night. So even if the defendants were at the theater, however, no one knew why they when they left. Um, so this like kind of goes on. Eventually, they are um, convicted of of the murder and mm-hmm. the kidnapping. Um, but they would go on to then appeal their. <laughs> They appeal their sentencing yeah. over and over and over. Um, so they were given the death penalty eventually. Um, but as I said, they went on to just appeal, appeal, appeal yeah. for mm-hmm. years before um, they were finally executed on. Oh, wow. I was going to say, I feel like this is going to take a turn for the, they appealed, 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 and finally got rid of the death that's penalty. That's what I, I know. I was, right. I was like, oh my gosh. I That's what I was, I was expecting. Or like they finally won yeah. or well, something like that. Yeah. They did. Not so much. Mm-hmm. But um, on March 11th, 1952, attorney Goodman sent another appeal for review of the Wilson case, Wilson case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court refused for the second time to hear the case and on May 9th ordered the prisoners returned to Clark County for a third execution date. The Wilsons arrived in Vancouver from Washington State Penn on Wednesday, May 21st. The following day, it took Judge Cushing one minute to set the date, June 23rd, 1952, when they were on their way back to their cells on death row. Wow. Um, let's see here. Uh, they would still like try to, you know, keep mm-hmm. appealing up until like literally the very last yeah. minute. Yeah. Um, not uncommon. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I, mean, I know like Manson even tried like mm-hmm. to, to appeal everything up until his death. Mm-hmm. Like, and he spent a long time in prison. Yeah. Right. Um, so eventually the Wilsons are not entitled to a clemency. Um, on a further stay and the judgment pursuant to the jury's verdict should now be permitted to take effect is quoted from the Walla Walla Union Bulletin. Um, on Friday evening, Terman in Utah ate a lavish last meal, which included fried rabbit and chicken, um, giblet gravy, cranberry sauce, French fries, hot biscuits, cherry pie, devil's food cake, ice cream, milk, and coffee. Okay. Fits into the stereotype I, I created. I, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say some yeah, of it. I totally yeah. agree does. Like yeah. the fried rabbit, the the giblet gravy. Um, I like giblet gravy, so meh. I'm not, nope, not going there. Wow. Um, but but also like the desserts and the cough. Like I mean, honestly, though, if that was your last like chance to have all the foods that you like. For sure. Yeah. And, and imagine would. if Can't that's judge. the, the yeah. food that that's what they grew up on. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, plenty of people grew up and on like, weirder you know, things. Good memories, probably, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. I mean, so. and if they chose that, that's great. Because mm-hmm. I know some people specifically like famous serial killers mm-hmm. or people who you know have had famous cases who've gone on to death row and stuff have actively chosen to not choose their last meal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's that's really interesting um yeah. yeah um so at 11 p.m the brothers were moved into an isolation cell where they were shaved um and dressed in new clothes then warden john r craner read them the death warrant at midnight on saturday january 3rd 1953 <laughs> Wilson's walked 40 feet from the isolation cell to the gallows, accompanied by four prison guards. Oh, the gallows. Yeah, Mm -hmm. where two traps had been constructed, separated by a curtain. Uh, The traps would be sprung by four guards, each who would press an electric button, one of which released the door. Black cloth hoods were pulled over the prisoners' heads, followed by hangman's nooses. At 12.06 a.m., Terman and Wilson dropped through the trap door without uttering a word. 
One minute later, the trap door under Utah Wilson was sprung, dropping him five feet to his death. The bodies were taken down at 1216 and prison physicians, Dr. Wilmer unsure i think that's how you say his name and dr ralph keys pronounced them dead okay so this is totally something that i would picture in like the wild west uh-huh. the fact that this is a thing in 1953 is mm-hmm. mind-boggling yeah. i was gonna say in washington yeah the death by there like the death penalty was by hanging for a really long mm-hmm. to me what i would expect yeah. to be longer than what well and I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know about mm. other. I don't know about other states. I don't know enough about it. But I. Mm. But I do know for a fact that Washington State is like, mm. when you would think there would be some other for technology. Sure. Mm. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm legitimately baffled right mm-hmm. now. Like I, mm. I, I yeah. like I just thought that something like that stopped decades well, I ago. Mean, yeah. You also have to consider the, um, the Nuremberg trials. Uh, the Nazis that were on trial, there were hung. I'm just saying. Uh, yes I, I mean i was yeah, gonna say long, that wasn't too long after yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was gonna say i mean nazis but obviously that has really nothing to do with that <laughs> right. um, um in a bizarre episode though minutes after the double execution western union telephoned warden craner's office advising a telegram that had just been received from u.s senator warren g magnuson um, herewith is ordered a stay of execution of Wilson Brothers by emergency decree, presidential authority delegated through me, a U.S. senator from Washington. Confirmation coming from Olympia. So Senator Magnuson was immediately contacted in Washington, D.C. and denied having sent the message and Governor Langley's office said it had no knowledge of the telegram. Oh. So eventually it all boiled down to um, someone had... Um, sent this telegram falsely and he ended up being prosecuted for it as well mm-hmm. oh yeah okay so while you're doing that we're we are doing research while talking about research while researching yeah the last execution by hanging in washington state was conducted on may 27th 1994 holy cow yeah that's crazy yeah. so we, do we still use the electric chair in washington i don't do we I, we I had used the electric chair well, for no, a long but time, I, but I, don't I know remember, that we use lethal injection now. But I also don't remember Washington being a death penalty state. Uh, it definitely is. Okay. sure? It, it was up until, I think we were in high school. Abolished on October 11th, 2018. Okay, but my point was, yeah. I had a feeling... Well, so yeah, I'm, I'm right. not arguing that it's still done. Yeah. I was just saying, at least yeah. it says the last high school was. execution in Washington State was 2010. Wow, and then it was abolished in 2018. So, so I mean, so I was I was right on two accounts, not really, just one. But, <laughs> not really. Um, yeah, but I told you, 1994 is way longer than you think. I, yeah. I knew it was Why some crazy number world? like that, but mm-hmm. like I I don't, I don't um, know. It's it's interesting I mean, to say. Well, the least. and that brings up the whole thing of the death, death penalty, penalty anyway, yeah. because I. I personally, this isn't the place, but like, I don't think that the death penalty is like the way to go it's either. Not, so it, yeah. it brings up like this whole other, for sure. We don't have time. <laughs> yeah, we don't <laughs> have time to get into it. You're that. right. Yeah, you're for right. sure. For sure. So, um, but fun fact, the term, the Wilsons were the 68th and 69th prisoners to be hanged at the Washington state penitentiary since 1901 when the state legislature mandated that all executions take place at the prison. Mm. Oh. So, yeah. And it was only the second double execution in state history and the first time that two brothers had died on the gallows together. Jeez. Mm. Those are not records you really want to break. No. Yeah. No. So, so I will say yours was a little on the disturbing side as yeah. far as the things that they did. Yeah. And mm. the way they went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Melissa, 
Can you I don't, top that? I feel like, <laughs> Allie, I feel like yours was super creepy. So I don't, <laughs> maybe I was wrong. Um, being a woman walking at night is always scary. And then when you hear stories about oh, for sure. women. Oh, anyway. yeah. And being so close to her destination, too. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. young she was. Because she was only like 18 when she died. So yeah. just terrible. But. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So mine this week is known as Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Which when I saw that, I was like, how do you forget about a serial killer? So... Um, I did this the last time I talked a little bit before I began about my research, but I really have to take a moment and think, um, Cloyd Steiger, and I hope I'm saying his last name right, but, um, he is the author of the book that I used to like fuel a, a lot of my research. Like yeah. it, it was my main source. I mean, history link was the same for me. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. In mm-hmm. some of these cases, it's kind of crazy. Like how little information there really is yeah. about them. Um, and in fact, like for, for this case, like pretty much any source that you could find when you Googled it mm-hmm. was based on this book. So mm-hmm. it was like an article about this book, okay. um, which was published in 2020. So, I mean, oh. it, I mean, and it's 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But who can forget that it's 2020? <laughs> um, and so 5,000 year long year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's new and there's not a lot of information out there that doesn't come back to this. So yeah. um, a little bit about Cloyd because thanks to him, like this story got told. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a former like Seattle area homicide detective for a really long time. Ooh. Um, and as of this book, he currently works for homicide investigation tracking systems, which hits is the acronym for that. Um, essentially the easy way to sum it up is um, after Ted Bundy and things like that, they started creating like a database with like information about killers and Mm -hmm. people who had been murdered. And so what had happened, he, he says in the beginning of this book is that somebody had written him a letter and said, Hey, have you heard about these people who passed and the case? And he, it wasn't even in the database. And so he was like, I have to figure out what this is because yeah, it's not there. And he had to like dig, like he had to ask multiple people for records and nobody had records. And anyway, he ended up writing a book, but, um, this case takes place. Um, it starts in 1969, which is just five years before Ted Bundy would come to the Seattle area, um, or start at, at least yeah. his killing spree in Seattle. We can get into the you know, did he kill somebody before that? But again, another time. Um, so the term serial killer wasn't. Yeah. yeah. It, it wasn't in your our vocabulary. For sure. Um, our vocabulary. I wasn't alive then, but it wasn't <laughs> in vocabulary. No one in this room was alive then. <laughs> yeah. no. It had not been coined, I guess. Um, and so I don't know if it's a lack of information because we didn't have the vocabulary to talk about who, what this was. Yeah. Or if Ted Bundy kind of like in like the horrific things he did, like kind of overshadowed it because it was Mm -hmm. so soon after. But um, either way, I'm grateful to Cloyd for uncovering the case and sharing it with all of us. So way to go, Cloyd. Yeah. So thank you. And here we go. Um, Like I said, um, it begins in 1969 in the town of Renton, Washington, which is actually just 11 miles southeast of Seattle. Yeah. Mm it's kind of, especially at this point, it was kind of a sleepy town, like um, not a lot 
there. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like that now. I mean, but I Ikea is there. We love Ikea. <laughs> I um, do love Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> Never been. No. Oh, sad. So <gasps> there is a river that flows kind of through part of the town. It's called the Cedar River. Yeah. It starts in the Cascade Mountains in mm-hmm. the east and it empties into Lake Washington, which borders like the northern end of Renton. And um, Lake Washington then goes up into the Seattle area. So um, the north end of Lake Washington borders Seattle. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, compared to Seattle, since it's a neighbor, um, it's relatively small. The population was only around 18,000 at the time. And what had really brought people there was that the Boeing plant was nearby. Um, oh, wow. S- still a major job provider mm-hmm. now. Oh, 100%. Lots of people work there. But um, originally, like, it was growing because it was making planes for World War II. Yeah. And then in this time period, 69, <laughs> um, they were making, like, commercial airliners. They had moved yeah. on to that. So, and air travel was becoming more popular. So, j- growing jobs. Mm-hmm. Um. So not only is it small though, but it's a really quiet area. There's really not crime Mm -hmm. and the homicide cases in the town's history all have been smoking gun cases. So if you don't know what a smoking gun case is, essentially it's a term for like when law enforcement arrived, the gun's still smoking. It's in the person's hand. It's obvious who, Mm -hmm. who, who did it. I mean, there's no question. Yeah. There's, there's, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. They know who did it. Um, and usually in the town, it had been people that knew the person and they were averaging about five years between homicides, which is, I mean, n- not as long as you would hope, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, especially being that close to Seattle, it could be far worse. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, so on the morning of December 16th, Edward Stewart is walking from his job at Chapman Electric to check fishing conditions in the cedar river and as he's walk i I don't know why he's walking from work to check fishing conditions but he He just loves to fish yeah um he notices what appears to be a mannequin in the brush and it's down near the river and as he gets closer he comes to the gruesome realization that it's not a mannequin but it's a body i was hoping that it was a mannequin (laughs) we haven't gotten to the bodies yet. yeah no i'm Oh, wow. I'm not horror. I'm true crime. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so he makes his way back to work to tell somebody and he runs into a friend. Oh. And instead of continuing to go and get help, I, I imagine the conversation being like the friend doesn't believe him that there's a dead body. So they go back to the scene together, confirm, yes, it is in fact a dead body. Oh. They return to Chapman Electric where they notify his boss and they call the Renton police. Here, let me show you. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of funny. Huh. Oh, um, this is a good time to point out. I should have pointed this out at the beginning. But because the city is so small and they don't have a lot of homicide cases, yeah. the police department is incredibly small and oh. there's not a lot of homicide detectives. I mean, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um, essentially, like every detective now is on a homicide case. Oh, wow. So when they arrive at the scene, they quickly begin to notice that the potential clues and evidence around the site. There's a lot left there. So um, there's the river with a big muddy trail that follows along the path of the river. And from the trail along the riverbank, there are drag marks to where the body's been left in the brush. Oh. Um, 
the what was interesting about the marks to them was that they were uniform which leads them to believe that the victim was either dead or unconscious um mm-hmm. because they would have if they would have struggled for sure it would have there would have been pattern. flailing right. yeah. there would be you know there'd be like areas of where like fingers were trying to like dig in yeah yeah, yeah exactly and so they that gives them a little bit of a clue um, in addition to the drag marks, there's tire tracks that are left in the mud. But as they look mm. around, like in the brush, there's no evidence of a struggle. It appears that it was easy or that the person had been brought there. Yeah. Um, and no weapons are found. So about 30 feet from the muddy path that follows the river is the body of a young white female. Um, her legs are spread apart. She's nude from the waist down, aside from her white stockings. Um, her sweater's been pulled up to expose her bra, but none of the upper items of clothing have been yeah. removed completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been stabbed in the back and has ligature marks around her neck. Oh. And there's also evidence of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she's autopsy later, they'll find that the stab wound actually was so deep that it fractured a rib. I, I think it was like the seventh rib or something like that. But Anyway, mm. um, it pushed it into the pl- and it pushed like the fracture into the pleural cavity around her lung. Okay, and then it also ended up getting some other ribs to that punctured the lower lobe of her right lung and the right atrium of her heart. Oh, um, and so so this was brutal. Like, yeah, this, there's there's it, no going about. Yeah, it. it was a bad it was a bad stab wound, yeah. mm-hmm. and it it was that that would that would have been um what was fatal, not yeah. the not the strangling. Yeah. Um, beside the body, they find blue jeans and women's underwear, Mm -hmm. um, and a brown woman's shoe. The shoelaces have been removed. Um, a matching and also laceless shoe is discovered at the start of the drag marks. Okay. Um, and the laces are found a little bit closer to the body. So they Mm. determine that this is most likely what caused the marks around her neck. Right. Um, and a little further away near the railroad tracks is a navy blue jacket. Mm-hmm. And I just have to say it was so, so weird because in the book, um, please don't look it up yet because it will give away so much. But um, they have pictures. They have like actual pictures okay. yeah. um, from the, that were taken like from the body or yeah. looking towards where the body was. Mm-hmm. And this place is like relatively bare. Okay. When you think brush, I mean, think brush you can see through. Oh, okay. Um, And so I was a little shocked that like nobody saw anything. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It just feels like it would have been a hard place to be like unobserved, yeah. I guess. Um, And so I was a little, a little concerned by that. But again, it was a relatively small town. People weren't really worried about stuff like that. So I guess yeah. it, it makes sense, but um, a little unsettling that it was so open um back to the story um because they can't find a murder weapon or any other obvious evidence to help them identify the woman's attacker which again is uncommon yeah um they don't really know what what where to go but they do find a photo book in the jacket and that photo book has a washington state driver's license that belongs to carol adele erickson and then also nearby they find a manila envelope and that has like a bunch of papers and stuff shoved in it Mm -hmm. um like recipes and things like that which have the same name carol erickson written on all of them um also in the manila envelope is a letter that was written um that says basically hey i 
just left the library, wanted to come watch the ducks by the river, mm-hmm. sat here for a little bit, you know, whatever. Yeah. Thinking of you. And so they kind of determined that that's what had just like that that was just written prior to this. Oh, wow. Um, so because it's 1969, they have to go find her family. And he, he acknowledges like mm. this is so brutal because they have to ID the body mm. um, and how awful that must be. Yeah. Um, like your loved one who is dead mm-hmm. and you have to see gosh you have to see you have to see the wounds you have to see what killed them right yeah um so glad that we don't have to do that any i mean i hope i never have to do that but, but so right. so glad that we don't have to do that yeah now mm-hmm. um and the parents do confirm that it's in fact their daughter so mm. i can't even imagine like the pain and hurt and mm-hmm. i mean anger mm-hmm. like you know thinking star wars you know pain hate mm-hmm. you know all, all of those things I can't imagine what the parents were going through and mm-hmm. and and even the thought of wanting to exact revenge because yeah. I'm sure that has oh, to come yeah. to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when their daughter is brutally mm-hmm. murdered mm-hmm. and sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like you can kind of be in denial until you. Yeah. For sure. Like this didn't happen. Like yeah, and then you actually have to. It can't be my kid. It yeah. can't be my There's loved a one. Yeah, and I. So hard, and thankfully we have technology now, and people don't really have to do that. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, um. But just a minute to talk, to talk about Carol. Um. Carol was 19 years old and was a culinary student at the local vocational school there in Renton. Um, she was a daughter and a girlfriend and had been working at the local rest at a local restaurant um, there. And she was like well known and was loved mm-hmm. by a lot of people, um, like a fairly active member of that community. So um, the detectives start trying to uncover what happened to her by tracking what she did for the past 24 hours of her life. Yeah. And so they start to ask around the school and a friend of Carol's um, that they question first or that they run into for mm-hmm. first um says well hey her and her boyfriend john were fighting this morning before they left mm-hmm. and suspicious yeah so they go and they question the boyfriend and the boyfriend's mm-hmm. like yeah we did fight because she wants to be in a serious relationship and i don't mm-hmm. and he said this happens all the time we fight about this she's clingy essentially is what he says um and that he took her to work and they went to work himself and mm. his alibi is all check out. Okay. Um, but he mentioned something about next boyfriend who's just been back in town. Hmm. Even more suspicious. Yeah. So Carol had been living with um, another girl, Bonnie in mm-hmm. an apartment, which was, so she was killed between the library and her apartment, which was oh. just um, further down. So um, she h- had presumably been on her way home. Mm-hmm. Um, Bonnie, she mentions that the ex-boyfriend wasn't happy that Carol had been seeing someone else. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that makes them more suspicious of the ex. So they start following that lead. Um, Then there's another report that there was a strange man outside the library that day. And so they're following all these leads. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they're able to confirm she did go to school in the morning. She made it to her work at Kingan's restaurant Mm -hmm. and she went to the library after work. She just didn't make it home. It was something in between there. And 
pretty much everything they can they end up being able to rule out everything checks out for those people the ex-boyfriend really wasn't in town or wasn't around at the time etc so the tips stop coming in and the case goes cold um which is cold cases are awful um, for so many reasons um so then on September 19th, 1970, which is just nine months yeah. after Carol's death, mm-hmm. um, 17-year-old Joanne Z- Zuloff is sitting at home and she's doing homework and waiting for her mom and stepdad to return mm-hmm. from Tiger Mountain where they had gone. It sounds like pigeon hunting. Hmm. Um, All right. <laughs> so, sure. yeah, <laughs> I, if that floats your boat. Um, Joanne is a small girl. It says that she's five foot two, really light. Red brown hair that's in a short bob style. Um, she's also a student at Renton Vocational School. Um, mm-hmm. and is known for being like a really fun and vibrant person. And the plot okay. thickens. Mm-hmm. So when her family gets back, she lets them know that she's going to go for a short walk before they have dinner, and that she has plans to ride her bike after dinner with a friend. Um, none of these things are like unusual yeah. for her. Um, but when she goes an hour later, she's still not home. Mm -hmm. parents get worried they hop in the car as concerned parents would do um and they drive and to look for her and they see a strange man coming out of the woods that they don't recognize but there's no sign of joanne oh no so fast forward to 10 30 she's still not home 10 30 p.m that night so six ish hours yeah Mm -hmm. missing um her parents call the king county sheriff's office Mm -hmm. so um when Carol was murdered. She was in the Renton city limits. So the Renton police handled her case. Um, Joanne's family lives in what was an unincorporated King County at the time. Okay. So when they make the call, they go to the King County Sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. Um, Important because again, pre Ted Bundy. Yeah. (laughs) Police didn't communicate a lot between for sure d- precincts district whatever you want to call it right um and especially state to state but so there's a chance that the king county sheriff didn't even know about the carol yeah. erickson case um and the operator tells them not to worry because teenagers go missing all the time they get angry oh, they run away that's oh that's so yeah. comforting yeah so the next morning she's still not home and they end up making a second call to the police and a sheriff arrives at about 3.30 p.m. So almost 24 hours yeah. gone. Um, the sheriff is immediately concerned when he learns that Joanne had plans with a friend after dinner. Um, and then he also finds like all her warm clothes. It's September in Washington State, which is chilly at night. Mm-hmm. Um, her car keys, her license and her glasses are all left at home. And this is all atypical, like for a runaway, you don't, yeah. you don't leave those things. No. And you don't make plans. No. Right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that's, I know that's another huge thing too. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're planning on running away, you don't make plans with someone mm-hmm. when you're going to run away. Because then people get scared when yeah. you don't show up. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that night at 6.30 PM, search and rescue arrive. They have dog teams and they start looking in the woods near her home because uh, as they are interviewing people, a neighbor said, well, I saw her enter in here just the night before. Um, and so just after midnight, her body is found about 300 feet from a gravel road that bisects the forest that's near her home. Oh, no. Um, and her stepdad sounded like he was frustrated because he was like, I told them to start there. Why didn't they start searching there? Yeah. It, it took them 
too long, he felt like. Um, her body is nude. Her bra and underwear are both lying about six feet from her body. Um, she's unresponsive. They check her pulse mm-hmm. for some reason. To me, it, it would have seemed fairly obvious. Yeah. But um, And she's pronounced dead. Mm-hmm. But it's a little after midnight and dark and so they are so afraid of disturbing evidence of the crime scene yeah that they decide that they're not going to process it until it's light out oh my god so oh. they set up detectives to guard the area so that mm-hmm. nobody can come in and disturb it yeah um and don't even start investigating until the next morning which has its pros and i mean pros and cons yeah. but i mean i can understand mm-hmm. why exactly yeah it, their reasoning makes complete sense True. Right. it's just sad that now they have to wait even longer yeah. for yeah. any answer. Well, but also like mm-hmm. the month of September in the state of Washington, mm-hmm. weather. Yeah. Rain, mm-hmm. yeah. cold. Yeah. All sorts of things. And then hot. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it could be, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. One extreme to the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's yeah. not good yeah. for other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as they process the crime scene in the morning, detectives find two footprints in the mud. Um, they photograph them. And use the the footprints to create plaster casts. Mm. Okay, um, smart. Yeah, so they have some evidence. Even though her body's nude, they don't find any wounds when they're observing her originally, um, which is strange. But she does have. Aside, they mention that she does have blood around her mouth and her nostrils, um, which is identified as purge. Um, like your body will, yeah, you oh, know, yeah. release mm-hmm. things like that. Um, after mm. death. So, yep, that's mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it appears that her body's been dragged from the trail to the area where it's currently laid. And aside from her clothes, they note that um, jewelry that her parents used as a way to identify her mm-hmm. if she was found was missing. So, oh. um, during the autopsy, once they move her out, they end up noting that she has a wound to the back of her head. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just wasn't visible from the way her body was found. Yeah. Cause she was found face up. Um, and the wound is consistent to being struck with a hard object that they guess is a rock. Um, they also find injuries to the neck, which are consistent with strangulation. Um, they decide possibly by a belt and I, I'm not going to say this right, but particular petechial hemorrhages on her face mm-hmm. which are another side of strangulation so essentially like um your blood vessels because oh, they yeah. can't, the blood can't move they start to burst yeah. oh, and yeah. you have like red splotches yeah. on your skin oh, okay um her body also holds evidence of sexual assault but the cause of death is determined to be um strangulation during attempted rape so a homicide oh, again no weapons are found um and this time they don't even have like the shoelace shoelaces or anything like that to guess what she could have been killed with right yeah um much like carol's murder there's a ton of leads that go nowhere people are coming out of the woodwork saying well this could be this could be both the parents and a neighbor had witnessed an unknown man coming out of the woods their descriptions differ though right um they end up making a sketch based off of the parents description i believe it was it brings no leads um, there was a 19-year-old man bragging about finding her body before the police did. So they pull him in. Of course. Turns why out, would you even brag about that? I, I yeah. know. It's, I don't know why that makes you cool. But turns out he's just showing off um, to his friends trying to be a big cool guy. Um, there was a known criminal with a long rap sheet that was in the area. But when they investigate him, they find that it's not a credible lead. 
Oh. On and on and on. And the case goes cold. So, um, again, King County and Renton Police aren't yeah. communicating. So, even though there's similarities between the two, nobody nobody's connecting those dots. Yeah. Right. Um, so then it isn't until Tuesday, April 20th, 1971, that more people go missing in the area. Oh my gosh. Um, unfortunately, it's all unfortunate, but unfortunately this time it's six year old Bradley Lyons and his friend Scott Andrews, who are also six. Um, they're playing outside. It was a beautiful day. People said that it was a day off from school. It was like a conference day, I believe. Um, and both boys parents have seen the two boys playing outside outside of their houses throughout the day mm-hmm. um scott's mother charlene leaves to run errands she has to get a new driver's license at about 11 30 so she calls bradley lyon's home to see mm-hmm. if they can send scott home yeah mm-hmm. and he's not there and they don't really think a lot of it because they play around the neighborhood and they ride yeah. their bikes you know it, but at five o'clock that night, everybody starts to panic and they call the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also, again, unincorporated King County. So it's the King County Sheriff's Office, again, yeah. who gets called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, search and rescue are immediately brought to the scene. And after a whole night of searching, they have no trails to follow. And it's April, which is rainy yeah, season. Yeah, that's like... That's bad. Yeah. That's torrential downpour. Yeah. And there's been puddles and the river is really full. So mm-hmm. they're yeah. afraid that maybe the kids fell in the river um, and that they won't have any bodies to even recover. Um, and they don't, but they don't stop. And on Thursday, so Tuesday is the last day they were seen. On Thursday, the bodies are found in a swampy wooded area down below the Royal Hills apartments. Um, the boys are both mostly nude. But their bodies have been covered up by fern leaves, brush, and their own clothing, like, laid on yeah. top of them. Mm-hmm. Like, they were put to sleep. And, in fact, the person who found them just saw the hair oh. um, and didn't realize what it was at first. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's interesting because they talk, kind of talk about the psychology behind this, that sometimes, like, this is an indica- indication of a killer trying to undo. yeah quote unquote their yeah. their crime like it's like their own they can't see them anymore the victim can't see them and so like it's like they're mm-hmm. undoing yeah it. exactly yeah um but uh, still kind of bizarre i am sure to mm-hmm. find that um in the woods um bradley lyons has a cord from a venetian blind that's been wrapped tightly around his neck four times mm. oh my god um, they have to cut it off um, because it's so tightly wound um, and like Joanne he has severe hemorrhaging on his face mm-hmm. um, Scott Andrews is face down his underwear around his ankles his t-shirt's been wrapped around his neck as though he's been strangled with it and he has multiple stab wounds to the chest and neck mm-hmm. um, he has three total stab wounds to the chest two of which punctured his lungs and heart and were fatal the other one was more of like a surfacey wound man um around their bodies they find footprints again they photograph them make plaster casts of them Mm -hmm. um but again no weapon is found so they call in the explorers search and rescue which is kind of crazy these are teenage boys like the boy scouts yep Oh, but no. they're for specifically for crime scenes. Yep. That's that's what they do. And so they yeah. they're like the people who stand in the straight line and mm. they all walk yep. together and yeah. search to the brush. And it actually works. Yeah, oh, I wow. 
I so I've I've been to a presentation of theirs even now. Oh. And they still It's like, still a thing. Yeah. Okay. And so and so they they also go they specifically look for missing people now too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I mean I, I, there's a like a large percentage of people that go missing and when they're found it's actually f- they're found by them they're all oh, volunteers that's really wow cool. they, i didn't i didn't even realize that was a thing yeah, yeah so um yeah it's 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 crazy it's it yeah. it's really cool that it's still a thing yeah and they're pretty dang successful and it's a bunch of like like middle-aged dudes and their mm-hmm. teenage boys yeah mm-hmm. like yeah and so i think that's a really cool thing too it's cool but also like not something I would want to do as a teenager. Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> like, these these teens do it. I, from what it sounds like, because their dads do it, yeah. and it's yeah. something that yeah. they and their friends go do with their dads and their. I mean, that sounds like, like a pretty cool bonding experience. Yeah, at the yeah. Same time. you're helping other people. Yeah, or hopefully there was able a, to find them before it's too yeah. late. Yeah, uh-huh. you know? there there was a case recently where a woman with Alzheimer's went missing, mm-hmm. and they, I mean, and she went like. I want to say on foot, like 30 miles away mm-hmm. from where she went missing oh in the gosh. woods. And th- they're the reason why she was found and got to her family and all of that. So that's so cool though, yeah. that they can, mm-hmm. they can do that. And it works here too. They find Sweet. a weapon. Oh. Awesome. So it, it does work. They do good work. Um, and so finally there's like a lead that they can go on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about now though is as they survey the crime scene and they go up to the Royal Hills apartments, mm-hmm. um, which are notorious for being like this bad CD area, um, they realize that the Royal Hills apartments are actually within the Renton city limits. Of course. And so this murder technically has taken place possibly within the Renton city limits. So now they have to call the Renton sheriff or the Renton no. police. So, but it's good okay. because they hadn't made the connection between Carol oh, and okay. Joanne. Okay. So now they're g- they're able to do and that. Yeah. So now they're like sharing this information and mm-hmm. noticing, oh my gosh, we've had now four people yeah. mm-hmm. go missing. Um, and this, this is like especially huge because in Renton's history, these boys were the first double homicide that's ever taken place. Oh my wow. gosh. So not only and i believe that there was something about like the first people underneath a certain age don't quote me on that i don't know if that was right but Mm. so the fact that it's like two young children and it's the first double homicide and that it's like all within a couple years when that's not typical right is kind of crazy so on the evening of april 20th which was the day that the boys went missing. Mm-hmm. There's a man named John Chance who's sitting in the ER at Valley General Hospital, which is nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's in there claiming he needs psychiatric help, but he's refusing to tell people his name. He won't really explain to the nurses what's going on. Um, they eventually get him to tell them that he's a con man. And as he's sitting in kind of the waiting room area, they notice that he's wet and he has scratches on his arms and they're concerned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they end up finally getting him to go back and tell him that his name is John Chance. Mm -hmm. And um, the ER doctor comes in and he finds him to be, quote, violently agitated but coherent. Um, and he just kind of like unloads on this ER doctor. He tells him, like, I've been in crisis clinics many times. I've been in one in Tacoma. I have mental health issues and right now I'm in the ER because I want to hurt children. Oh, oh. so he, oh no. Yeah. Um, he states, and th- this was super interesting to me. I want publicity. 
I have a feeling that I'm identifying with the Manson family. Like Manson is controlling my mind. Oh. And Manson is clearly scarring for people who oh, for sure, are yeah. al- alive and adults and aware of what's going yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're very concerned based on the, the history he's given and the things he's saying. Yeah. Um, and he just continues to be really evasive about about questions regarding like who he is and where he was before you know, yeah. they're like, what were you doing tonight? And like, he won't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the doctor hadn't really thought much of it, but then when he hears that these little boys are found and he's talking to his wife, he's like, okay, this was all the same day. Yeah. Yeah. And th- that day they had ended up giving him like a shot of something to, you know, calm him down. Mm-hmm. Um, so the doctor has to go to the hospital lawyers because well, it's patient confidentiality. Yeah. And, the lawyers are like well there's a loophole there's this battered child law and Mm -hmm. because this case involves children like you can go to the police and say i'm concerned that it could be this guy okay so he does and the police come and grab john chance and they start to question him about where he was and he's like well i had i have a mental block i can't remember where i was what i was doing Mm He continues over and over and over again to bring up the Manson murders and mentions <laughs> that he believes he's from Saturn, that like he's a child of Saturn. Oh. Um, he insists that other people control both him and his mind. And he has many stories of like knowing that he was someone else. One mm-hmm. was that he knew he was the mayor of Seattle because people were staring at him while he was walking down the road. Oh. Um, he also had a story about meeting Jesus in oh. Tillicum, Washington. Sure. Um, seems from today's yeah perspective Mm -hmm. lots of mental health Mm -hmm. issues oh for sure yeah someone who's emotionally unwell maybe not reliable yeah um but what concerns the police is he ends up knowing detailed information about the murders of the boys okay and like how like how they were killed things like this where they were found when they were found um, how their bodies were found. Um, and so they become suspicious and they take him to the crime scene where he attempts to kind of like sh- reenact yeah. like where he went, what he did. Yeah. Um, and it, it just seems kind of bumpy. Like he, they ask him where he would have dumped a weapon and he, he says, Oh here. But then he like gets lost. It, it just seems not reliable. So yeah, it sounds sketchy. Like yeah, he's, yeah, for sure. he's trying to make it sound like he did it because again, sounds like he wants attention yeah yeah i mean he flat out said i want publicity exactly yeah right and and yet it just it doesn't sound legit no yeah Mm -hmm. so and again our perspective today the police didn't take into account the fact all this information had been printed in the newspaper so like the information that he knows has all been given to the public that's not common practice now Um, They also don't know that he has been given a previous diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia or maybe they do know, but they don't take it into account, I guess. Um, Nor the fact that it has been recommended before that he's hospitalized permanently people. Mm. I mean, so um, they end up charging him with the murders of Bradley Lyons and Scott Andrews. Oh no. Um, so they're kind of pursuing this this stuff with him, charging him, but they still have to examine like all the evidence at the crime scene. And the big thing is, or the most notable thing is the, the knife. Yeah. Um, the only like weapon that they found. So it's a hunting knife with um, that has um, a black handle and a blade that's about five inches long. 
um, electrical tape was wound around the handle. Um, and as they're examining it, they undo the electrical tape to okay. get, to try and get fingerprints was their okay. right, um, goal. Um, but they find a name that's been etched into oh. the handle. Oh. Okay. And the name is Tom Evanson. And so like, once again, like everything else, they start this rabbit trail. Of, yeah. You know, um, Tom Evanson was 20 years old and he was at basic training at the time of the murders. And so on April 30th, 10 days after the boys had gone missing, mm-hmm. um, he talks to police and says, well, I sold the knife to a friend. So they go to the friend um, and the friend was like, yeah, I wound it in electrical tape before I gave it to Jim Monger. And that Jim Monger lives in a trailer park up off the shore of Lake Washington. Um, Lake Washington Boulevard is actually the name of the road. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jim Monger is a sixth grader at the middle school. The last person to have been given this knife. Mm. So they go up to the trailer park and they find Jim Monger and he's like, yeah, I, I did have that knife. That knife is mine. Mm -hmm. But a friend from the trailer park had given me a ride and I accidentally left it in the passenger seat. Okay. And when I asked for it back, he Mm -hmm. said, well, my dad found it and he won't give it back. Oh. Um, and that friend's name is Gary Jean Grant. Oh, so they go to question Gary Grant's dad and say, you know, why did you keep the knife? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you know about this? You know, are you the end of our trail? Yeah. So um, just to know about Gary Grant's dad, he formerly worked for the police mm-hmm. and he at the time was working as a security guard. Um, they're living in that trailer park off of Lake Washington, which is within the city limits. And yeah. um, he has like a known tumultuous relationship with his wife mm-hmm. who has a major alcohol addiction issue. Okay. And so he's he's like willing to talk to police. I mean, he's he loves him in the house. Like he's more than happy to comply, but he yeah. he denies like seeing or knowing of a knife. Okay. Um and as they're discussing this, Gary comes home. Mm-hmm. So I have a feeling crap's <laughs> about to hit the fan. <laughs> so they recognize Gary, the police do. Yeah. Because he's a wanderer. He like walks all over the town. Oh, um, and they know him. Um, like he he's not necessarily known by name, but because he wanders. Right. Yeah. Um, he's a familiar face. Um, so the police are like, hey, can we talk with you more about this? And he's like, sure. And as he's getting into the back of the cop car to, to go and chat with yeah. them about this knife, um, they notice that the markings on the bottom of his shoe are really similar to the markings left at the um, Lions and Andrews murder scene. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So the the police officer who was with him is telling the other officer like hurry up we got to go you know we might we might have something right so like, put it in gear <laughs> yeah yeah like finally like there's things that are connecting yeah um so when they get him there he he's like well on April 20th I was walking by the river and I fell in and mm. ha- kind of has like this story uh-huh. um he was like claiming that he was looking at fish in the river and fell in which as a 19 year old seems strange yeah very strange very mm-hmm. strange um as he, a 19 year old male that sounds very yeah, strange yeah uh-huh in april when it's pouring down rain for sure warm. like mm-hmm. i love the rain you couldn't catch yeah. me outside looking at fish in the water yeah while it's raining no right 
Um, and so he also said like, they're, they're just like asking him questions about that day. Like trying to get him to talk about yeah. that day. Mm-hmm. He was like, well, I, you know, like, what were you wearing? And he says, well, I was wearing these shoes and they're like, well, did you have the knife? You know, we're looking for this knife or what we're wondering where, where it was. And he was like, oh, yeah. I had it with me. Okay. And so then he like totally veers off track and he starts talking about problems with his mom where she gets violent or abusive and he's he's not he's not at all saying that he has a connection to the boys okay. like he's, okay. he's this isn't even they're not even talking about the boys um but he's he starts talking about like how he's blacked out before and sees his mother doing things when it really involves somebody else so like somebody might be making fun of him and he blacks out and he sees his mom making fun of him oh instead of that person Mm -hmm. and so he it makes him really angry and sometimes violent kind of norman batesy yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so many people oh for sure people like that yeah um but he claims like he wouldn't hurt anybody like he wouldn't actually do that Mm -hmm. and so the police are like well will you take a polygraph and he agrees and so they they put him in and when you start a polygraph like you do baseline questions to kind of determine and so they're kind of going through these baseline questions and reading him some things and he starts to sob and he starts saying like i don't i don't know why i did it i like little boys like and ultimately starts confessing okay to having killed oh my god scott and brad and bradley and brian sorry wait no Bradley. Yeah, Bradley. Yes. Mm-hmm. I wrote Brian. I don't know why. That's my husband's name. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't kill my husband. Um, I was like, wait, that's not right. Um, and so the guy, like, they explain, like, he and Cloyd Steiger, the author of this book, explains mm-hmm. that, like, some of these people are still living that worked on this case. Oh, okay. wow. So he did get to talk with oh, some okay. of the people. Mm-hmm. And then basically, like, they walk in and they're like, oh, my gosh, I just got, like, he just confessed, like, yeah. out of the blue to this thing. He's crying. He's clearly upset. And so after they get the, they get a confession, that confession from him, they try to get him talking about it and mm-hmm. talking about what's going on. And, um, he, he, um, is not super open about it mm-hmm. and, but they finally get him to talk. They're recording yeah. this interview and then they realize the tape stopped. No. So then the police write out his statement for him while he's talking, which mm-hmm. he signs as being the truth. Okay. Um, and just kind of sad. And so after they get him to, to talk about this, one of the detectives comes in and says, Hey, I want to ask you a question mm-hmm. involves a girl and a rope and a river. And he says, oh, did she have dark hair and was and homework or. Okay. Immediately identifies Carol. Oh. As he's talking about Carol and like talking about that killing, he starts, he switch all of a sudden switches and says, well, she had the short red hair and I hit her in the back of the head. Oh. And goes on. And so. It's like he doesn't even realize that now he's t- talking about. Now he's literally just confessed to four murders. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, kind of unintentionally, yeah. unwittingly done mm. it. 
and the te- the detectives like the, they say the like the detective comes back out mm-hmm. to take a break and is like he just confessed to killing both of the girls like i can't believe like yeah. they just can't believe what's happened right um and so after he starts doing that has now identified carol erickson joanne zuloff and the two boys yeah they are like we have we have it in, yeah. in the bag yeah <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> but as they question him he claims like he can't remember major portions of it so okay like he'll kind of talk about part of it and then mm-hmm. when they go to back to question more he'll be like I, I don't know i blacked out or i don't know i don't remember um and it it's just like really sketchy yeah and so they end up trying to get him to draw for the joanne zuloff who was found in the woods they, okay. they get him to draw out the crime scene yeah. which he does with incredible accuracy for never having been there mm-hmm. he's able to kind of draw like a ravine and and put like an x where her body was and um identify the area which is fairly close to like where the murder weapon was i mean he it's it's crazy detail and he's not even there yeah, yeah. um and so they they're they convinced that this is their guy yeah yeah but they've they want to charge him they've Mm. already charged john chance oh and he is like being arraigned and is gonna have a trial that begins in two days from this date as they are questioning Mm. gary grant and so they grab him they arrest him they call him a material witness to murder because they Mm -hmm. can't charge him yeah while john chance is still in custody right and john chance ends up eventually being released and Mm -hmm. then they charge gary jean grant with the murders Mm -hmm. um unfortunately now that they have everything in line they have evidence they have shoes that match the plaster casts they have a weapon that can be traced to him Mm -hmm. um, by multiple people and they have his confessions mm-hmm. um they find out that their case is on the line because unbeknownst to them one of the captains oh no had placed hidden recording devices oh no in the interview rooms in the police station and because of this um gary grant's private interview or not interview um conversation mm-hmm. yeah. with his lawyers has been recorded no and that they're not that's a big no no yeah so that captain ends up getting charged um and you know mm-hmm. in trouble for what yeah. he's done right um but like there is a chance that it can toss the whole case out the window right um they're continuing though to put the case together so they start putting him through um psychiatric evaluations and it's just so so crazy um like the types of things that he i shouldn't say crazy strange i guess maybe um unbelievable Mm -hmm. that's that's the best word okay um like the types of things so he starts talking about staying with his sister penny in oregon um and he was going to counseling there but he had problems his sister would, in his words, downgrade his mother because of her drinking. Mm-hmm. And he was upset because his sister liked her sons more than she liked him. Yeah. Um, so then he came back to Seattle. He had problems in high school. So he joined the Navy. 
discharged from the Navy after two months, um, blames this um, CO that he had. He calls him sadistic, Mm -hmm. says he would get beat up, called him mama's boy. Oh, man. Um, They would play tricks on him. He had a drug infraction, um, but it wasn't his fault because he got put with the people who were drug addicts. Um, Didn't he, you know, talks, he didn't really do anything. He, he was engaged to a girl until just after his discharge. Mm -hmm. Um, His parents told him in his words that they didn't like her so that he had to choose between the, the engagement or the family um, he like he literally just talks about all these things and and the big thing though that keeps on coming up is like the mom thing. Yeah, he's mad that the sister is talking bad about the mom, which he constantly does. He talks yeah. about how terrible his mom was. Right. Um, the Navy called him a mama's boy. Yeah. You know, so on and it's clearly some issues there. And but they do determine they that he was like coherent enough Mm -hmm. um, to understand, to have an adequate understanding of what he was doing. So he's not considered, you know, insane or anything like that. Yeah. Um, He also like, they do like some character references where they start asking other people about him. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, this is where some interesting stuff comes up. So the girl that he was engaged to, um, she ended up getting a present from him oh, no. for her birthday, which was just days after the Joanne oh, Zuloff no. murder. Uh-oh. And her present was a watch that she received from him, oh. um, which happens to be the exact description of the watch that Joanne was wearing the mm. night that she disappeared. Oh my gosh. Um, and when he gives it to her, I wish I could remember the exact words, but he says something. She had been like giving him a bad time for mm-hmm. not having a job mm-hmm. and yeah. not being able to provide her with things. Mm-hmm. And he's like, see, I can, I can earn things when I work for them. And like, gives her the watch. Yeah. Oh um, my God. And like friends, you know, are talking about all these instances where things were weird or, f- or fishy yeah. um, with him. So again, they have mountains of evidence now against him yeah. right um when the trial starts the defense moves to dismiss the case entirely based off of the recordings that were found okay mm-hmm. um but the judge denies it and his denial statement is um i think really powerful he said an innocent public should not be penalized because of an illegal act on the part of the police department Ooh. Ooh. and Dang. so talks about you know the the at this part that cop at this point the cop had been criminally charged for yeah. the action yeah. so he you know he says he's he's already paying for the crime that he committed mm-hmm. the public shouldn't have to for pay sure. yeah. right. and let a, a person go on that's that's really powerful especially for the time yeah like, absolutely that's crazy yeah so um the the trial goes on they present the evidence um, the jury ends up taking two days to del- deliberate, but he um, ends up being convicted. His life is spared, even though death penalty by hanging, by hanging. would yeah. have been on the line. Um, and he ends up going to the penitentiary in Walla Walla with all of our other I was going to say friends. literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone Three. goes there. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. To serve um, four consecutive life sentences. Wow. Jeez. Um, and 
so there's an epilogue to this to this book um, where um, the author references a different book called Through the Eyes of Serial Killers, Interviews with Seven Murderers. Um, that sounds intriguing. That yeah. Is, yeah. And it's written by a Canadian author. Her name is Nadia Fazani. Um, and she had been exchanging letters with Gary Grant for four years. Oh. Um, while he was in prison. This was published in 2015, so okay. not too long ago. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he's still... Kicking. I would, uh, yeah, I would assume they're in alive. Um, and so in his letters, he claims he does not remember the crimes um, he was arrested for um, and said that that's like why he cooperated with the police at all because he didn't remember it at all. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy because he, I mean, he drew literally, that map. Well, I mean, he, and he, well, I mean, but he confessed everything mm-hmm. by changing gears so fast in his interrogation. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, he, we do know that he, like, he, f- he forgot a bunch of stuff. Like, yeah. he actively couldn't remember huge chunks of each crime. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, he ends up telling her in these notes, and I'm going to end up reading a couple portions of this, but, mm-hmm. um, he like tells her like well i agreed to the polygraph because i didn't have anything to hide i didn't have any conscious memory of this yeah. at mm-hmm. the time um when he started going through the tests for the polygraph yeah. before mm-hmm. he broke down he said that that was the last memory he has of that day oh um even though after that he confessed to all mm-hmm. the murders um and they do know like he he could he couldn't read Mm. And he could barely write his own name. Okay. So the police did have to write that for him. For and sure. he wow. signed it, yeah. which mm. is a little, you know, that, it's that's like, a little okay. sketchy, yeah. especially mm. since he can't read. Yeah. 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 So he doesn't even know if it's, um, yeah, everything what he, he actually, said. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he, he ends up saying like he had locked away all the bad memories in his life mm-hmm. at the time and that, he said thanks to counseling he can externalize the things oh wow um and this was the part that like i just felt was super interesting so it's he this is a direct quote from this book Mm -hmm. um he told her of a night when he was home alone with his mother she was cooking in the kitchen when he accidentally bumped into her she threatened me with her chopping knife i ran to my bedroom and grabbed a fishing knife i had i had and there was a fishing pole as I came back out of my room, she came towards me in a fit of rage. I wanted to attack her, but the fear mm-hmm. in me turned into that overwhelming fear I had of her, and I ran. So then after that, he describes, he, it says, he described running down the railroad tracks armed with a knife. Oh, no. Just then, a girl walked past me. As she did so, that rage created by years and years of pain, fears, and frustrations of anger and lust came to the surface. Mm-hmm. This unknown girl became my mother and every girl who had ever laughed at me or made oh, my fun gosh. of me. gosh. And then he talks about how he moved up behind her and what wow. he did to yeah. her. Um, and it, in the end, he says, in these times of rage, I lost all my sense of right and wrong, which the author of this book, having worked in homicide, points yeah. out mm-hmm. that that's actually the very definition of legal insanity. And he, he actually writes, how convenient. Yeah. Um, but the, I mean... Again, you yeah. can be a skeptic and say that this is all for sure, you know, to get out of it. But yeah. um, this is something, you know, that there there is like a lot of people who have mom. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, or not just mom issues, but for male serial, mm-hmm. which I guess serial killers are primarily yeah. male. 
Um, but there seems to be like these mom or dad issues. Yep. And mm-hmm. the fact that like he literally said, this girl became my mom. Yeah. And yeah. every other woman. It reminds me of, um, I can't think of his name. I can picture him. Ed Kemper. Oh, yeah. Um, the co-ed killer mm-hmm. and he talks about this is another he, they talk about him in Mindhunter too Cody mm-hmm. I was gonna um, say I literally don't know what you're talking no, about but, at this point uh, yeah but Ed, but not just in Mindhunter in his actual yeah. interviews mm-hmm. um, Ed Kemper like talks about um, like his mom worked with the co-ed girls mm. and she loved them more than she loved him mm, and mm-hmm. so like when he when he was killing them he was seeing it as like hurting his mom is yeah. he the guy that they interview in the prison in in Mindhunter, yeah, yeah, the, okay. the really the really tall, tall guy, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I yeah. do know who you're talking about. Yeah, cool. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but like, so like this Gary Jean Grant yeah. wasn't mm-hmm. isn't the only for sure man yeah, who's ever been. That. It seems like it's yeah. common. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but very interesting. But that is the tale of Seattle's forgotten serial killer. Okay, so wow. you both had some pretty crazy, mm. morbid things. Yes. Um. Oh my gosh. Um. <laughs> Well, if so you guys hold on though, you oh promised no. we were gonna judge. Oh, that's oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Um. So here's the deal. I I think that both cases are really really interesting. I think that both of them, in their own way, are creepy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, Allie, I don't think yours had a twist like it like a mm-hmm. big twist. <laughs> like the moment that you brought up that he, Melissa, the moment that you brought up that that Gary was was being interrogated and mm-hmm. then switched gears and started talking about another one mm-hmm. yeah and he had already confessed to killing the two boys and then and then he's talking about the girl and then switches and starts talking about the other girl mm-hmm. that's when i was like oh my gosh yeah so melissa i'm gonna say yours is that's fair creepy <laughs> morbid and um I'm really interesting i mean i don't mm-hmm. know if it's a good prize to win yeah it yeah really isn't, you know yeah. But, um but um so ladies if you don't mind I'm going to go ahead and just sign us off. Yeah, totally. Um, So everybody, thank you so much for listening. This is going to be a little bit of one of our longer episodes. Sorry. Uh, Don't be sorry. (laughs) This is great. We both had quite a lot. Yes. Uh, So I just want to remind you that you can follow us along at Spotify, Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, hopefully Google Podcasts in the near future, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Breaker. We also have Instagram at Nightmare Collective Pod. You can follow us on Facebook and we have Twitter. Do you remember what it is? I believe it's the Nightmare Co. Two. Two. Yes. So um, you could also just search the Nightmare Collective um, podcast when you go to Twitter if you want to find us there. Um, Guys, this has been wonderful. Once again, we are your hosts, Cody. Melissa and Allie. Keep collecting those nightmares and And stay stay creepy. creepy.